My name's Thomas Bailey. I live in Exeter, Ontario. Who knows where that is? My wife and I have been married for 31 years, and we have two adult children who are also both married, and we have two grandchildren. But I'm here today as part of Creation Ministries International. Now, we have offices in seven different countries around the world. Our Canadian office is in Kitchener. And one of the interesting things about our ministry is not only do we partner with a global community of Bible-believing scientists, but we also employ quite a number of Ph.D. scientists of our own. I'm not one of them, all right? Uh, I'm a regular guy. My job is to take the research the scientists have done and try to communicate it in a way that regular people can understand. Now, if you were here for the first session, you're probably thinking, wow, that was a lot of information, and, and it went by really fast. If you want technical information, there's lots more of that available to dig in. But from here on, we're, we're going to keep things uh, dialed down a bit for a more general audience, if you will. Now, we're an information ministry, and we have two goals. We want to encourage you in your faith. Let you know it's okay to believe the Bible from the first verse the way it's written. There's lots of scientific evidence that backs up what the Bible says about history. Now, we're not looking to science to prove the Bible. The Bible is the Word of God, so that is our authority. But we do find that the science backs up what the Bible says very, very well. Now, we also want to equip you with information to help you in your witnessing with other people. We probably all know somebody who is skeptical of the Bible's claims because of things they've heard in science class or in the media, and we want to give you some information to help you have an intelligent conversation with the skeptics in your life and get them a little closer to understanding the Bible really can be trusted. And if it can be trusted when it comes to Genesis, then it can also be trusted when it talks about Jesus and the gospel of salvation through faith in Him, right? Because that's the ultimate goal. Right? It's not about winning an argument here. We really want to lead people to Christ by helping them understand the Bible is true. So as an information ministry, of course, we have a website. Our website's fairly easy to remember. It's called creation.com. Say it with me. Creation.com. There will be a test later. Great place to go if you have any questions to do with origins Things to do with Noah's flood, fossils, creation week, all kinds of other scientific things that come into play when we're thinking about the Bible's history. There's over 13,000 articles on this one website. There's loads of other information as well. There's all kinds of videos available, including every episode of a TV show called Creation Magazine Live. We produce that and film that in our Kitchener office, and we're now in our ninth season. Right? Look for the next episode coming out soon on our website, all about Noah's Ark. It's uh, visually stunning, this one. Lots of great information available there that it doesn't cost you a thing. Now, a few years back, a friend of mine told me a story about his niece. She was about five or six years old at the time, and she had heard the creation account from the Bible. How God created the heavens and the earth in six days, on the seventh day he rested. After hearing this, the little girl apparently said, how do you know? Who was there? I said, those are valid questions. Now, that may surprise you to hear me say that, but let's think about this logically for a moment. Let's do a quick review of the creation account from Genesis 1. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. He separated light from the darkness. There was evening, there was morning, one day. 
On day two, God created an expanse around the earth. On day three, he separated land from water and created vegetation. On day four, God created the sun, the moon, and the stars. Day five, he created the birds and the sea creatures. And on day six, all the land animals, as well as man in his own image, both male and female. On the seventh day, he rested. So you can see the little girl's logic. She's thinking, well, there's nobody around till day six. So how do you know? Who was there? I said, those are valid questions, but I hope she uses the same logic when she goes to school and they tell her about the Big Bang and evolution. I'm sure you've heard this idea before as well. How something like 13.8 billion years ago, there was nothing but then a very tiny something and it exploded. And then about 4.5 or 6 billion years ago, planets, including our solar system and, and our Earth, began to form. And then about a, a billion years after that, there were lifeless chemicals on the Earth. And from the lifeless chemicals came the first tiny living organism, life from no life. Then over the course of millions and billions of years, that tiny organism gradually evolved into things that are larger and more complex. We get things like plants and fish and birds and eventually modern man evolved. All of this over billions of years. So I, I said, I hope she asked the same question. How do you know who was there? Because you see, if we compare these two histories, we find that for creation, we've only got five or six days to account for before there were people around to tell about it. For the evolution story, or the naturalist story, there's billions of years of what we call prehistory with nobody around. Now, of course, that's not the only difference between these two histories, is it? How do we know the creation account to start with? We've read it, right? It's written down. It's in the Word of God. And speaking of God, there he is in the very first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, that answers one of the questions right there. Who was there? God was there. Before there was man or an earth or even time itself, there was God. And God inspired Moses and other eyewitnesses to write down the Word of God. And, of course, God himself is an eyewitness to his own creation. He, wrote, he made sure this got written down in a way we can read it and understand it even today. So to compare those two histories again, for creation we have a written record. We've got eyewitness testimony, and behind it all is God. For the evolution story, or the naturalist story... Well, there's no written record. There's no eyewitnesses for billions of years. And no God. Or at least, no God required. Because you see, that whole idea is put out there to try to answer the question, what if there's no God? What if there's no God who, that created the heavens and the earth? It, it must have created itself somehow. And that must have taken billions of years. So then what we end up with is two very different histories coming from two different starting assumptions. Now, somebody may be thinking, well, hasn't science proven that the earth is billions of years old? Let's consider some key points about science. First of all, evolution is not synonymous with science. It's not like there's an equal sign between those two words. It's, it's not evolution and science over here versus creation and faith over here. Creation and science have always gone hand in hand. However, sometimes science gets confused with history, and we'll talk about that in a minute. And finally, the facts don't speak for themselves. 
Now, if we talk about science, you probably remember learning in school about the scientific method. You make observations, you form a hypothesis of what may happen under certain circumstances, and then we run experiments to test our hypothesis. It's observable, it's testable, it's repeatable, it's how we figure out the way things work. But then there's something called history. This involves things that have happened in the past. And if we want to know what happened in the past, a great thing to do would be to have an eyewitness. Maybe they wrote it down, right? But if we don't have an eyewitness, the best we can do is, is look at evidence in the present and figure it out from that. Right? You, maybe you've heard the term historical science or forensic science. It's the, the question of trying to use science to figure out things from the past. But science is limited here. Science is meant for making observations in the present. You can't really run an experiment on something that happened in the past, and the farther back you go, the harder it gets. And unfortunately, the facts don't speak for themselves. Let me give you an example. Suppose we find a dinosaur fossil. Now, we can look at where we find that fossil, we can study it, we can see what it's made of. That would be the fact that we're studying, okay? That, that would be in the realm of science, or operational science, if you will. But it doesn't come with a little tag attached like this that says, Hi, my name is Parasaurolophus, para for short. I was born April 15th, 75 million years ago. Right? See, it doesn't come with that much information. That's in the realm of history. And if we weren't actually there, then we have to make some kind of an interpretation. Right? We always have to make an interpretation on the evidence that we find because we weren't actually there to see how it got there. Right? Certain things we can find out in the present, but other things we can't possibly know. And the interpretations we make on the evidence are always based on presuppositions. A framework of ideas, or biases if you will, that we already hold to be true. And everybody does this. There's really no such thing as a completely unbiased scientist, at least when it comes to history. A biblical creationist, for example, would say the Bible is the word of God. It's real history. God created the heavens and the earth. And we base our interpretations within that framework. An evolutionist, on the other hand, or the naturalist, might say, well, the Bible's irrelevant. There is no God. All that's out there is the material universe, and it created itself over billions of years. So then what we end up with is two different interpretations coming from two different sets of presuppositions or worldviews, but it's the same evidence. And so we look at that evidence, and we can find out certain things about it, like I say, operational science, but when we start talking about the history of it, how did it get there, now we're into interpretation based on those presuppositions, and we're in the realm of history. So be careful. Sometimes history and science get uh, confused. Now, problem we run into is often the interpretation gets put out there as if it's proven fact, like the fossil itself. And we see this all the time. We see it in science journals, the media, school curriculum. Of course, we're going to find it on websites. Now, I don't have anything against this particular website, but here's an example of what I'm talking about. You can go to this website talking about a museum where they, they say they have 700 fossil specimens. Well, that would be the facts, right? That's the evidence that they've dug up and they've studied, right? That would be in the realm of science. 
But then when we look through the text here, we find phrases like evolution of life, long ago geological events. Well, those phrases are woven in there. They're all interpretation. They're interpretation based on presupposition that the universe created itself over billions of years. One thing evolved into another, and this is where these fossils fit in. But see, it's all put in there not as an interpretation, but as if it's the one and only interpretation or proven fact. And that's something we could call indoctrination. Now, parents and grandparents, of course, we want our children to be critical thinkers, to ask questions, to look at different sides of an idea. But it's hard to be a critical thinker if you're only ever given the same interpretation year after year after year. From the time you're a little kid reading a dinosaur book all the way to university. And maybe you never get a chance to look at another possibility. Now, it's not hard to find that kind of interpretation everywhere we go. It's a lot harder to find an interpretation of the evidence that fits within a biblical framework. And that's where ministries like ours come into play. That's why we have a website. It's why we employ all those scientists. We send speakers into churches. It's why we send out information like our email newsletter called Infobytes. This is a way of getting a little bit of our information into your inbox by uh, email. Highlights uh, some of the key articles from our website from time to time. And I've mentioned some upcoming events. It's a way of getting a little bit of our information that doesn't cost you a thing. Now, I'm going to ask the ushers if you would start to pass out that first set of clipboards, please. Now, if you would like to receive a little bit of our information uh, by email through these newsletters, all we need from you on this form is your name and your email address. Uh, You can give us your postal code there so you don't get emails meant for BC or something like that. But uh, I'm going to ask that you go ahead and pass those out and uh, just pass them back along between the rows amongst you as we continue through the talk. And uh, and you can uh, sign up for some of our information that way. Now, of course, what we're talking about today has to do with the book of Genesis. And you may have heard, well, Genesis is just a side issue. You know, it's not real history, it's not about science, and it's not as important as other major doctrines like the gospel, for example. Well, let's see how important Genesis is. I want to start with Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, that's the gospel message right there. The wages of sin is death. Because there's sin, there's death. Sin separates us from God. That's the bad news. The good news is if we put our faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who lived a sinless life and then died on the cross to pay the sacrifice for our sins and then he rose from the dead, we can be reconciled to God and have eternal life. That's the great news of the gospel we have to share with the world. But see, the whole idea is kind of hinged on the notion that The wages of sin is death. Where do we get that idea? Let's take a look at Genesis 2. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now, God had created plants to be food for not only animals but people as well. As of the end of day 6, nobody was eating meat. No bloodshed, no carnivory. Specifically, God tells Adam, you can eat from any tree in the garden, but if you eat from that tree, you will surely die. The implication being there wasn't any death in the world up until that point. 
course, there wasn't any sin up until that point. And you may remember how it went. Adam and Eve ate the fruit. They sinned. They disobeyed God. And that brought the curse of death into the world. Everything now dies because of that curse, because of sin. They received both physical and spiritual death, which we inherit from them, and that's why we need a Savior. So if you think about it, there's got to be something historical about Genesis here and, and a real Adam in order for the gospel to fully make sense. We can look to Genesis for the foundation of a number of other major doctrines through Scripture as well. It's where we first hear about God, about sin, about the Messiah, about marriage between one man and one woman. It's where we first learn about you know, why do we wear clothes. All of these doctrines throughout Scripture have their foundation in the book of Genesis. So it's a really, really important book to be looking at. Now somebody could be thinking, well, you know, we hear so much about evolution. Maybe they go together somehow. You know, maybe we can take the two ideas and mash them together. Maybe God used evolution in some way. And a number of well-meaning theologians have tried to find ways to do that. Let's see how well that works. Let's start with what the Bible tells us about those six days of creation, and on the seventh day, God rested. Then let's see if we can add in the evolution idea as represented by those many layers of rock that are full of fossils. Layers, we're told, represent millions of years of slow and gradual evolution. Of course, that means we're talking about millions of years of death and, and decay and bloodshed and disease, right? Because fossils, they're, they're just remains of actual creatures that lived and died. And there's evidence of carnivory in the fossil record. There's even cancer in the fossil record. So we need to take all of that into account if we want to try to roll those millions of years of evolution into the Bible somewhere. Let's see if we can put them in maybe before creation week, before day one. Well, remember the first verse, in the beginning God created. Now, if God used millions of years of evolution to create before that, does that mean there were two beginnings? Did God start over and he didn't tell us about it? And then how do you account for all of that death before sin? Because remember, death came into the world as a result of sin. There was no sin until there was an Adam. There was no Adam until day six. If God used millions of years of evolution to create before that, that means millions of years of death going on before sin, meaning death isn't the result of sin then, and so why would we need a Savior? See, this idea undermines the gospel message. And let's not forget, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Maybe you've pictured the Garden of Eden on day six. You know, there's, there's Adam and Eve communing with God in the garden. They're there with all the animals. Everything's very beautiful. But you know, if God has used millions of years of evolution to get that far, that means they're already standing on a bone pile that's a, a mile deep in many spots. And in there, you got all that death and disease, even thorns. That kind of calls into question the character of a God that would call that very good. And here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul reminds us the last enemy to be destroyed is death. See, all through Scripture, we're led to believe death is a bad thing. I think we know that. Jesus came to defeat death, amongst other things. So then why would God use millions of years of death in order to create? It just doesn't quite fit. 
So if the millions of years of evolution don't fit before creation week, what if we put them in during creation week? What if the days are not literal days, but maybe a billion years long? Well, Hebrew scholars from around the world, people who don't even believe the Bible, have affirmed that the Hebrew word yom for day, in the context we find it in, in Genesis 1, with a series of numbers, etc., in that context it means a literal day. And then we have Exodus 20:11, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. You ever wonder why a week is seven days, not ten? Why are we supposed to work six days and rest on the seventh? Because that's what God did. Now, he wasn't tired. This is Almighty God. He could have done it all in an instant, and he could have done it in billions of years. But he chose to do it in six earth rotation days, and he set that as a pattern for us. So if you think about it, if each one of those days was a billion years long, Who's looking forward to Monday? See, if God wanted to create in billions of years, he could have done that, and he could have told us that's what he did. Instead, he made it very clear, and even wrote it here in the Ten Commandments. And in this model, we would still have the problem of death before sin. So really, the only place the fossils can fit in biblical history, because they represent death, is after sin comes along, which would mean then after creation week. But can they be millions of years old? In Genesis 5 and 11, we find what are called chronogenealogies. These aren't just lists of names that say Adam begat Seth and so on. But there's a measured number of years given there between one person to, to his son, from that person to his son, and so forth. And we can actually add that up and do the math, follow that chronology from Adam all the way to Abraham, and it all adds up to approximately 2,000 years. And then we look at other biblical history and some other sources, and we find that Abraham was born probably somewhere around 2,000 B.C. Some would say maybe a little, little longer than that, but definitely not millions of years. So then what this gives us then, that means that total world history, according to the Bible, really adds up to only about 6,000 years, according to, to those records. Clearly, millions of years of evolution doesn't fit in there. So, if the millions of years of evolution doesn't fit with what the Bible tells us, then maybe we could alter our hypothesis of trying to mash them together, and instead, let's ask the question, are the fossils and the layers of rock really millions of years old? I mean, how does it long does it take for a fossil to form? Well, in the past, we've been taught it's a slow process. It could take millions of years. But yet, we find things like this. Here's a very well-preserved ichthyosaur fossil. But if we look closely, there's actually two ichthyosaurs there. Yeah, that's baby ichthy being born. So this is a mama given birth, and they're fossilized in that position. Do you think that took millions of years for that to happen? I'm sure all the ladies are thinking, no way. Yeah. No, something happened to bury, bury them very rapidly so they could be fossilized in that position. And we find that kind of thing all the way through the fossil record. In fact, paleontologists are now finally admitting that rapid burial is needed for fossilization to occur. 
Because when a living thing dies, if it's not buried rapidly, it's going to decompose, it gets picked apart by predators, and you've got nothing left to be a fossil. So that's a lot of rapid burial in that whole fossil record. Now, there's other indications in the fossil record as well that the, they're not at millions of years old like we've been taught. Over the last 30 years or so, there's now been dozens of discoveries of soft tissue in dinosaur bones. Bones, we're told, are tens of millions of years old and older, and yet we find things like, well, this one's from 2005, soft and stretchy blood vessels found inside a T-Rex bone. We find things like bits of protein and blood vessels or blood cells and even little bits of DNA. These are highly unstable things that operational science tells us don't last anywhere close to millions of years old, right? But there they are. Powerful evidence that those fossils are not as old as we've been taught. If we go back to the rapid burial idea, you can visit Joggins Bay in Nova Scotia. You can see the cliffs with all kinds of layers of rock showing there, all kinds of fossils showing in those layers, and you can see something like this. An upright tree trunk completely fossilized through many layers of rock Layers, we're told, took millions of years to form. Now, I've had dead trees taken down in my backyard. They didn't show any signs of staying upright for millions of years while they got gradually covered up. Something must have happened to bury this thing rapidly so it could be fossilized like that. But that would mean those layers had to somehow form rapidly. Is that even possible? Well, here's another cliff in Washington State. You might recognize it. I'm actually old enough to remember when Mount St. Helens erupted in 1980. I was about 13 at the time. You can do the math if you want. It was big news. But what I found out later is three distinct events happened there, and each one of them caused one of these major bands of rock to form here. That, that whole cliff there is about 130 feet high in that spot. First two eruptions caused those two major bands to, to form each on a single day. And then mud flows came down from the top of the mountain about two years later. Now, the middle layer contains a lot of the fine layering known as laminate. And normally we expect one or two of these fine layers to get laid down over the course of about a year. And, of course, you add that up, you'd get millions of years. But in this case, there's 25 feet thick of those fine layers that got laid down in only about three hours. Clearly, layers of rock can form very quickly. And then there's the canyon itself. Now, there's a, a river going down through the middle of this canyon. And if we didn't know any better, we might assume that the river carved the canyon over millions of years. That's the kind of thing we've been taught. But in this case, when those mud flows came down from the mountain, they carved a canyon through the existing layers also in a single day. And then that river formed later just from rainfall. See, what a difference it makes when we have eyewitness testimony we get a different interpretation on the same evidence. So where do we get the notion that layers of rock always take millions of years to form? It comes from an idea called uniformitarianism. A couple hundred years ago, some geologists suggested that the present is the key to the past. So if we see slow and gradual sedimentation in the present, like we do, then the assumption was it's always been like that in the distant past, and it's never changed. But see, this doesn't take into account the, the possibility that some kind of a major catastrophe may have happened in the past that caused a lot of sedimentation or erosion very quickly. Something like Mount St. Helens, for example. 
Or how about a global flood, like the one we read about in Genesis? Now, some would suggest this was a local flood. It got exaggerated. But what does the Bible tell us about it? In Genesis 7, we read, The waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. Now, a cubit is about 18 inches. So this is telling us that all the mountains under the sky were covered in water to a depth of more than 20 feet. This does not sound like a local flood to me. We're going to talk about that a lot more tonight. Now, what's described in these chapters is global in proportions. And can you imagine the devastation from that? From all that amount of water, the amount of sediment being churned up and laid down again very quickly, the number of things buried in that sediment. Now, Jesus refers to it here in Luke 17. He said, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Now, he's talking about his uh, second coming, a, a judgment still to come. But he's saying it's going to be just like it was in the days of Noah. Because Jesus understood Genesis to be real history. Do we believe Jesus? And Peter did too. Second Peter 3, he said, Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. In the next verse, he too draws a parallel between that judgment of the past and a future judgment to come. And he's telling us here that a time's going to come when people will deny that a global flood ever happened, despite the evidence. Because you see, for hundreds of years, people mostly looked at those layers of rock full of fossils and, and saw them as evidence for Noah's flood. It made perfect sense. It wasn't until some geologists a couple hundred years ago offered a different interpretation of those layers that theologians started trying to figure ways to put millions of years into the Bible. But as time goes on, the more we learn about our world and even our solar system, we continually find evidence that backs up what the Bible says about history, but doesn't necessarily fit with the billions of years timeline. A few years ago, the New Horizons Project did a flyby of Pluto and sent back a good deal of data that confused evolutionists that believe Pluto is about four and a half billion years old. They found there's a lot fewer impact craters on the surface than there should be after that amount of time. They found it's geologically active, Odd for something they assumed would be old, cold, and dead by now. They find it has a young atmosphere. They thought the atmosphere would be completely gone. And the moons even orbit at different speeds and in different directions. See, these and many other things in our solar system actually defy what is known as the nebular hypothesis for planet formation in our solar system. It's part of the Big Bang Theory. There's all these things that really don't fit with that model, but... They fit perfectly well with what the Bible tells us. Now, somebody could be thinking, okay, look, it. in the end, creation, evolution, does it matter what I believe? Well, it always matters what we believe, because ideas have consequences. 
right? I mean, your, whatever you believe about God or about origins, your worldview, it has a profound effect on how you live your life. And it's the same for everybody we know. Jeff Jacobi explained it this way. He said, For in a world without God, there is no obvious difference between good and evil. There is no way to prove that murder is wrong if there is no creator who decrees, Thou shalt not murder. One might reason instead, as Lenin and Stalin and Mao reasoned, that there's nothing wrong with murdering human beings by the millions if doing so advances the Marxist cause. Or one might reason from uh, observing nature that the way of the world is for the strong to devour the weak, or that natural selection favors the survival of the fittest by any means necessary, including the killing of the less fit. We read that last part, we might remember another major world leader named Adolf Hitler from the last century and his agenda. Heavily influenced by evolution, by the way. So if we go back to these two histories again, we look at that bottom line, God, no God. Well, we could ask the question, if there's no God, then who says? Right? If, if there's no God who decides what right and wrong should be, what the laws of the land ought to be, then, well, who decides those things? In the absence of God, we do. We become number one. If you adopt a system that eliminates God from the equation, humans become number one. We can de decide right and wrong for ourselves. We can decide the laws of the land. Right? And that's an attractive prospect to anybody that doesn't want to be accountable to God. Now, of course, we live in nations where we have governments and we have to decide the laws of the land. And for many hundreds of years, in the Western world at least, those laws have been largely based on a biblical worldview. We look to see what God had to say. But over the last hundred years in our culture, the last 50 or 60 especially, we've seen a gradual shift away from God's ideas to where we're sort of making up some of the rules for ourselves as a culture. Here's some of the things we wind up with when we do that. We get things like legalized abortion. We get sexual immorality of all different kinds, leads to nasty side effects like higher rates of uh, STDs and divorce rates. And we see programs like eugenics, programs intended to improve a population by eliminating the ones that some would consider to be less fit, like the mentally challenged, for example. Now, that's something Hitler and the Nazis are well known for, but it started in universities long before them, and it has its roots in evolutionary thought and hasn't gone away. And then, of course, their euthanasia is in the debates. Now, we've seen these things coming around the last hundred years, and some of these have even been on the rise in the last 50 or 60 years in the approximate time we've been teaching evolution in our public schools. Now, it's not a direct cause and effect, you understand, but you can kind of see the logic there. If we teach whole generations of young people that they're just random chance accident from a rock somewhere, there's no God who loves them, no real sense of right and wrong, well, that's going to affect their worldview over time, isn't it? And eventually, that will affect the culture as a whole. And I think we're seeing some of that in our time. It has an effect on the church as well. You may be aware there's been a number of studies done over the last couple decades showing the startling numbers of young people who are raised in the church who grow up and they leave the church by the time they're in their 20s. The Barnard Group did a study a few years ago, showed 61% of 
We've done some of our own research on this as well. It confirms all of these findings. Some of those are denominational studies. Take a look at that bottom one, 90%. That's in Canada. Now, we see these things, of course, we get worried. We wonder, well, what's going on here? Why are these people leaving? And there's probably several factors, but uh, here's a clue from another more recent Barna study. Found that 49% of, of church-going teens say the church seems to reject much of what science tells us about the world. Now, please understand, when they're thinking science, they're most likely thinking in terms of evolution and billions of years. That's what they've been taught as science. It's really an interpretation of history, but it's been put forward as science. And, and, of course, over in school, you've got textbooks, you've got experts. And over in the church, you've got the Bible that says something very, very different. And yet in the church, we haven't always been very good at, at backing up uh, what the Bible says with some evidence. And unfortunately, some folks won't even consider what the Bible has to say until they see a little bit of evidence that, that helps to, to back that up. Now, I want to give you one more example of worldview. This one's rather strong. Anybody here ever hear of Jeffrey Dahmer? Rather well-known serial killer from the 80s. Now, he actually became a Christian before he died in prison. And he gave an interview with Dateline NBC, and he said, If a person doesn't think there's a God to be accountable to, then, then what's the point of trying to modify your behavior to keep it within acceptable ranges? That's how I thought anyway. That's how he thought when he committed his crimes. He believed he was random chance from a rock, believed evolution was true. Now, through the interview, we find out that he received some creation science material from his father, and, and here's what he says a little later on. He said, so I started reading books that show how evolution is a complete lie because there is no basis in science to uphold it. And I've come to believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is the true creator of the heavens and the earth. He didn't just happen. And I have accepted him as my Lord and Savior, and I believe that I, along with everyone else, will be accountable to him. Anybody can be saved. But you see the stark difference in his worldview? From the time he believed he was random chance accident from the slime, no God who loves him, no sense of right and wrong, to the time he realized there is a creator. He saw evidence for that creator, for his creation. He heard the gospel message and realized his creator is also his savior. What a change. Now, can you imagine how different his life might have been and the lives of others had he understood that much sooner? Now, I'm not suggesting that anyone who believes evolution is going to become Adolf Hitler or Jeffrey Dahmer. Those are extreme examples, but you can see some logic there. In fact, you can be a Christian and believe evolution. But if that's where your thinking is at, I would invite you to take a little bit closer look at that in light of the science, but especially in light of Scripture. Now, you may be thinking, I, I don't want to deal with these big issues you're talking about. I just want to share the gospel. I want to tell people the good news. You can be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. And we would agree. At CMI, we agree the gospel is the number one thing, but people also have questions. Before we can talk to people about spiritual matters, they often have questions of a, a more earthly nature. They might be wondering things like, well, you know, how did Noah get all those animals on the ark? Or who did Cain marry? They could be wondering about the distant starlight billions of light years away. Or, or what about carbon-14? These are the kind of questions that, that people have that act as stumbling blocks to accepting the claims of the Bible. 
It's kind of hard to talk about eternal life and resurrection from the dead when somebody's trying to figure out how many animals you can get on an ark. Maybe you've heard some of these objections. Maybe you're wondering some of these things yourself. And the good news is that there's answers to those questions. There's biblically based and scientifically sound answers to all those questions that people have. Now, obviously, getting answers to people isn't automatically going to help them become Christians. They need to hear the gospel. The, the Holy Spirit needs to be involved. But it's a piece of the puzzle for many people like Jeffrey Dahmer and others who won't even consider the Bible without seeing some evidence and getting some answers. In 1 Peter 3.15, he tells us, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So we share the gospel, we give testimony, but we're also supposed to give an answer or make a defense. When somebody questions us about our faith, they might, they're going to question us about things from Genesis and say, why do you believe that? Now, the reality is you're probably going to forget a lot of what I say here today after a few weeks. How many have already forgotten the key points from your pastor's sermon six weeks ago? Don't raise your hand. I said that in one church, the pastor raised his hand. Anybody in school right now? Anybody ever been in school? Right? We, we know this, right? You really want to learn something, retain it, be able to talk about it later to somebody else. You can't just hear it once. You've you got to have something more you can refer to and study. That's why we're an information ministry. It's why we have the website and all those resources you saw in the foyer. And our number one equipping tool is Creation Magazine. It's a family-oriented magazine that comes out every three months. The articles are nice and short and easy to read. There's a children's section in the middle of it. And it's cutting-edge science that's done from a biblical perspective. There isn't even any paid advertising in the magazine. Now, it's a recurring subscription that we have, so you sign up for it once. You arrange for automatic payments from a credit card or a bank account, like we do so many things. And it's $7.50 every three months. Not every month, it's every three months. For that, you get a hard copy of the magazine. You can keep that in your home. You can lend it out. And you get a digital copy that you can download on up to five devices. And if you want to sign up for that magazine today, we'll give you your first copy of it here for free, as well as a free DVD as kind of a sign-up bonus. So when you go out to the sales table out there, you'll see some DVDs there by the cash that are all for sale. But if you want to sign up for the magazine, you can have one of those for free. So I'm going to ask the ushers if you'll pass around those clipboards one more time. This time you're going to see a form that looks like this. If you'd like to receive Creation Magazine for yourself or a gift for somebody else, then what you need to do is uh, tear one of those forms off from the clipboard. Right? Make sure you fill it out on both the front side and on the back. We need name and address and email and everything on the front. And then we, back we need your payment information and a signature. You don't pay anything up front. Just fill that out front and back. Bring that to us at the, uh, in the back table there, and we'll get you set up with your subscription and your free gifts. Uh, and if you missed it the first time, we have clipboards back there as well to still sign up for our email newsletters if you'd like to connect with us that way. While those go around, I'll quickly highlight a, uh, a few other resources that, uh, that I like besides the magazine. One of my favorites is the Creation Answers book. It's bright red in color. It's easy to find. And it answers over 60 of the most asked questions that people have about Genesis. Things to do with Noah's flood or some of the biological things we talked about this morning. 
It's a great go-to resource to have. And a, a good companion for that is Christianity for Skeptics. This one's a little more philosophical. It uh, compares Christianity with other major worldviews like Islam and atheism and so on. It's, uh, those two are actually available together in a pack uh, at a discount. And I mentioned this one this morning. If you really want some hardcore scientific evidence, then get evolution's Achilles heels. Nine PhD scientists showing how the evidence put forward by evolutionists as, as strengths for their argument, fossils and DNA and things like that, shows how they're really weaknesses. They don't stand up to scrutiny. And then we have something called the Genesis account. Now this is almost 800 pages of theological and scientific commentary on just those first 11 chapters in Genesis. It's incredibly thorough. It's great, uh, great for pastors or anybody that really wants to dig in to those first chapters of Genesis. And coming off that, we created the Genesis Academy. It's a small group Bible study that digs into those 11 chapters week after week with half-hour videos and a, uh, an accompanying study guide. This has been very popular in a number of the uh, churches we've gone to. And, of course, we have children's resources. We want, we want to equip our children from a very young age because we know they're going to get the other story from a very young age from elsewhere. And you may have noticed the big pack. That's called the uh, Creation Library Starter Kit. Odd name for something that's got that much in it. Tons of information there. There's all, some of the uh, resources I've just mentioned, plus a whole lot of other things in there, and uh, it's heavily discounted. Well over $300 worth of materials there for just under 200 This is good for a church library or a, a real creation nut. I mean enthusiast. Now, you might be thinking, that sounded like an infomercial just now, didn't it? But that's not the point. I didn't come here to make a sale. The point of our ministry is we want to equip you with information to bolster your own faith, but also to help you in your witness to skeptics. And help them to understand the Bible can be trusted because ultimately we want to lead them to Christ. But you know what? Hey, if you don't want to spend money, that's fine. Get the free stuff. <laughs> right? Remember the website. 13 plus thousand, ar thousand plus articles on there. Who remembers the name of the website? I told you there'd be a test. All right. All right. We're going to close the service in a minute. Let's, uh, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, again, we, uh, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the beauty and wonder and design in your creation, how you've revealed yourself to us in so many ways, not only in what you've created, but in your, uh, in your revealed world, word where you uh, revealed your, your plan for us. But most especially, we thank you for coming to our earth uh, in, in the form of your son and taking on life and actually taking on our sins. Lord, we thank you, Jesus, for doing that for us. And Lord, we ask that you would uh, go with us and help uh, equip us to, uh, to be able to better understand what you've told us in your word and to be able to communicate those things to other people who just, just don't want to listen to what the Bible has to say. We thank you, Lord, for everything that, uh, that is going on here today. We thank you for being, being amongst us, and uh, we ask that you would guide us through our week. In Jesus' name, amen.